Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks from Revelation 11 over being a brave and bold messenger for Christ. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Amen. Welcome to Impact Church this morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Man, it's awesome to see the house of the Lord packed out. So without further ado, let's get right into God's Word because we're continuing in our sermon series entitled The Overcomers where we've been going expositionally through the book of Revelation. And this sermon today is a second part to a sermon that we started last week entitled Can I Get a Witness? And we went through chapter 10 last week, a a very weird chapter in the book of Revelation, as we saw, where it talks about this angel having this little book, and John ate the little book, and you're like, man, what is that about? Does that even belong in Revelation? Yes, it does. And we've shown you how, how valuable that information was to where we are in this book of Revelation as we started into this interlude of these chapters. So still in this interlude period, in this message, we're going to learn of Two witnesses today that God used to do something that he had prophesied through his prophets that he would do and fulfill his promise to Israel and call his people to himself. All right? Can I get a witness? Part two. We know a witness can change things because what a witness is is really a messenger, a messenger of something. And there's one popular messenger that maybe you learned about in high school years ago in history class that that took a midnight ride on April 18th, 1775, and his name was Paul Revere, right? And he made that famous ride into Lexington, Massachusetts, where he started to say the British were coming and and warn the, the militia at the time and the people that there was an attack of the British soldiers coming. And it got them ready and geared up, and it saved uh, Samuel Adams and John Hancock from being arrested. And then he himself, he started into Concord, and then he was arrested by uh, himself by soldiers, but then released. So his message was one of value to the people he was speaking to, and it actually saved possibly some lives. But how many times is a messenger asked or required to bring a message that's not popular? One that's not valued or welcomed, one that's in fact resisted, one that's in fact fought against. We're going to see here in the Bible today that these two witnesses that come on the scene come in a time of tribulation in the world. They come in a time where the church is raptured out and evil is starting to prevail. The Holy Spirit and the restricting force of Holy Spirit has been removed so that evil can make its way. And they have to come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and share to a world that's going completely the opposite direction, where a false religion is raising up and taking over the world. How unpopular would that message be? If you were called to deliver it, would you do it? Think about the message we're supposed to share in the world that we live in today where we know it's becoming increasingly more and more unpopular to stand on God's word and to preach the truth. It's counterculture, and it's hard, and it's so much hard that people start to clam up, and they get quiet about their faith. It's so hard that even pastors standing in pulpits today are scared to preach the entire Bible, and they leave holes all in this thing so that people don't hear the truth because they don't want to step on their toes. Even the very messengers that God has put in the pulpits are backing down from the message you're supposed to preach. But we're going to see two that are going to stand. And inside that, we're going to see God's promise fulfilled to his people. But it should be an encouragement to us today. You want application? We're going to get some application. What we've been talking about through this whole book of Revelation, that this book is not here to scare us, it's to prepare us. It's to enlighten us, not to frighten us. And it's to prepare us to get on board with Jesus and share the gospel to a world that's lost and dying, searching for hope and heading for a place called hell and destruction if they don't repent and turn around. But will we join the mission that Christ has set before us? 
we're going to see these two witnesses stand in the face of opposition like we'll never face. And they proclaim God's message because he's their witness. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we come here today to worship you, to magnify you, to glorify you. Lord Jesus, to lift your name high. And Lord, to hear from your word another revelation of you. So Father, I pray that you would speak, that you would move in our hearts and minds, Lord, as we learn of two people that you will set on this earth in the flesh to preach your word in a world that's lost and is filled with bitterness and hatred towards you. And Lord, they stand and claim the way. Father, help that move our hearts today right now where we are for us to stand, for us to proclaim your truth, for us to, yes, love on people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. That's why we fight on our knees, and that's why we depend on your truth. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. Give us strength where we're weak. And, Father, that we will receive power when your spirit comes upon us to be your witnesses. Lord, move in the hearts of your people today and do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11 today. We're going to get through 14 of these verses, and we're going to take them piece at a time as we go through because we're going to start off before we get into these actual two witnesses that the Lord speaks about. We're going to learn about something that's pretty special. That most people, if you're reading Revelation, you just glance over these first couple verses and you're like, eh, whatever, let's keep going. That doesn't mean anything. Yes, it does. <laughs> if it's in here, it means something. Believe me. There is nothing in here by chance or by circumstance that this is something we need to know. Because what we're going to see is this temple fulfills prophecy and it prepares the way for what God is about to do. So let's read the book of Revelation, chapter 11. We're going to read the first two verses before we get started. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Many people would just look at that and move on, be like, eh, what's that? It's a lot. You ready? Because the temple that the Bible is referring to here is the temple that must be in place on earth for the, for the fulfillment of what Daniel, Jesus, and Paul talked about in the word of God regarding the abomination of desolation. The temple's got to be there for it to happen. Does the temple exist right now? No, it's not there. It has to be there before all this becomes fulfilled. How will that take place? We're going to see it here today. Okay, and we're going to see why and how. Because remember, we're in an interlude chapter. And John is giving us information from the Holy Spirit that we need to know about what has happened and taken place during the first half of the tribulation. Okay, you with me? Because we're in this middle point here. So it's time for an interlude to give us information, parenthetical information about what's already taken place. So we know that the prophet Daniel told us that Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jewish people. When will that happen? We've gone through this time and time again. Midweek, right? The 70th week of Daniel, halfway through the tribulation, at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, this will take place, all right? What does this mean? What's gonna happen? The Antichrist is gonna stop the sacrifice and the offerings in the temple. He's gonna go inside and he's gonna set himself up as God and demand for the people to worship him, 
all right? That's the abomination of desolation, all right? You're going to understand why it's the, a desolation here at the end, okay? We know it's an abomination, but what do you mean desolation? What does that mean? What does that cause? And we're going to see that, all right? And it's going to make the Bible come alive and start to make this book of Revelation and all the prophecy of the Old Testament make sense, okay? We're going to learn. So we know all this was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12 concerning this abomination of desolation and what the Antichrist would do. So this uh, Antichrist, we know, also from Daniel chapter 9, starts this seven-year tribulation period with a peace treaty. All right, we've already talked about that. And this is more than a peace treaty with just Israel. All right, this is going to include Israel, but it's actually going to be an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. And what it's going to do, it's going to allow Israel to rebuild the temple. Okay, that's important because that's what they want to do. That's what has to take place, all right? So this agreement will allow Israel to rebuild the temple at its exact spot on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, all right? The place that the Jews believe and call the, the navel of the earth. They believe it's where creation started. They believe that it's where Abraham took Isaac up to be sacrificed, okay? This is where the Holy of Holies sat in the original temple. It has to go in the exact same spot. It can't go anywhere else, all right? So that's important. Right now, there's nothing but tension around that, and they can't build it even though they want to. And we're going to talk about that, all right? So what we're going to see is there's going to be a compromise needed on both sides for the Palestinians and the Israelis for this to take place. They both need to come to an agreement. Verse number two starts to show us how this takes place, all right? And most people don't see this, because they breeze over it, but also because they're not taught. Nobody teaches the Bible anymore. Pastors don't stand up and, and preach this stuff, so people are, are, are dumb to this. They don't know. That's why Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about any of this, about end times. That's why it's the prophecy and the revelation of Jesus that we need to know. So the Bible says in verse 2, we just read it, it says, do not measure the outer court. That's a key. All right? Do not measure the outer court. What else does it say? It says, because this region where this was has been what? Given to the Gentiles. It's the word turned over. It's the Greek word didomi. It means to give. So this land where this part of the temple used to be is going to be given to the other people, the Gentiles, in this peace agreement so that they can in turn get what they want, and that's to rebuild the temple, all right? So the temple has to be real, rebuilt on the same site, and it's going to be rebuilt minus the outer courts, which is going to allow this compromise to take place, because this is what's important. Right now, there's also another structure up on the Temple Mount area called the Dome of the Rock for the Muslims, I don't know how many of you know that. This might be like complete, like new to some of you guys. So I just want to explain it. There's a dome of the rocks that's up there that for years, many believe was sitting right where the Holy of Holies was supposed to go. So for years, many felt that the dome of the rock, this Muslim building had to be torn down before the temple could be rebuilt. But they found out that that's actually not the case. All right. So first I want to explain a little bit about the temple. Okay. Because some of you don't uh, know or have a picture, so I want to real quickly look at it. We can bring that picture up of the temple. So what you have, and this was the second temple in its um, entirety. So you have this large open area, and over toward the back center is the holy place, all right? Inside the holy place was some uh, of the furniture um, where you had the, uh, the, the table of shoe bread. You had the, the, um, the altar of incense. You had the lampstand, which is, was the menorah. And then also inside that holy place was a veil. And that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where the high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement to provide intercession for the people in their sins. Okay? Outside of that holy place, you can see just this small area right around that large portion of the building in the back, was the court of the priests 
first. And that's where they would perform the sacrifice. And there was the altar there in the place of washing. Three steps down from that was the court of the Israelites. That's where those who were ceremonially clean could come into the temple. That was separated then by a wall, which then had the court of the women, which is that cross-looking kind of centerpiece. Yes, that's right. The ladies were not allowed past that wall inside the temple any farther. Outside of that court of the women is the court of the Gentiles. That's known as the outer court, and it probably was much larger than what's depicted there. So this outer court is what's going to be left off in the new temple when it's rebuilt. This is important because it is what allows the temple and the Dome of the Rock to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount together. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, through his word, said, hey, I ain't worried about that Dome of the Rock up there. This is what's going to happen, and this is how it's going to be made. And it's all through this agreement that has to take place, all right? So most people were taught this is impossible to happen um, because they thought that the Holy of Holy was located right there where the Dome of the Rock is. But now, through archaeological digs, they know that the Holy of Holies was actually about 100 yards north of where the Dome of the Rock is because they found a cistern that was located between the courts and the altar of sacrifice in the old temple. So therefore, they knew where the positioning of everything was, so they know that the temple can be rebuilt and the Dome of the Rock does not have to come down, all right, through this compromise. So that means the Jews are excited and they want to rebuild their temple, all right, but they're not going to be able to do it just yet, all right? And we're going to see some of that. I'm going to read you something here in a second that'll point to some of that as well, all right? But first things first. So Muslims, Palestinians, Jews are going to exist on the Temple Mount together, the Dome of the Rock and a temple. What does that sound like to you? Conflict, right? But there won't be. Why? Because of the Antichrist. The one who comes to bring peace and bring them together and bring them to compromise. All right? So right now there's tension. This wouldn't happen. All right? So something has to happen to make this even possible to come to fruition. All right? I want to read for you a quote from an Islamic uh, movement of Israel um, founder, all right? And I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try, all right? But he says this regarding the temple being rebuilt. He says, even the Jews believe that it is prohibited to rebuild the temple until the Messiah comes. Did you hear that? They need a Messiah to come before they can rebuild the temple. So what is there to talk about? The Mahdi, we're going to talk about the Mahdi in a little bit for Islam, will decide whether or not to rebuild the temple. If he decides that it should be rebuilt, I will go out to the temple mount and help carry the rocks myself. Some Muslim talking. How much faith they put in their Mahdi, their Messiah. Darwish warned against any attempt to rebuild the temple before the coming of the Mahdi. As long as there is a Muslim alive, no Jewish temple will be rebuilt on the temple mount. There's some actual words for you, all right? So you see that there's resistance and reason it can't happen now, but all this will come together when the Antichrist comes on the scene, all right? So you with me? So everybody's excited when, when, some, when some red heifer showed up in Israel last year, like, oh, they're going to rebuild the temple. Nope. Not because of a holy cow, <laughs> all right? They're going to rebuild it. When the Antichrist comes, okay? That's said from the Muslims and the Jews. That's when it will happen. And we're going to see this. So what does that team, what does that mean? What are you saying, Brad? Does that mean they're going to think the Antichrist is, yep, yep. The Jews, many of them, will believe the Antichrist is the Messiah. And they will fall hook, line, and sinker. Because what they are looking for is a man. And they'll quote to you Deuteronomy 18, 15. Do they believe um, 
that the, the prophet, that, that the Messiah will be a prophet like Moses, a male prophet like Moses, and that he will lead them to rebuild the temple. We just heard that right there, but that's also, they will quote Micah 4.1 in that. They believe that he will bring peace to Israel finally. We know that's what this peace treaty will do. They believe he will make Israel the most important place on earth again. That will happen when the temple's rebuilt because all the Jews will want to flock into Israel and Jerusalem again to worship at the temple. Do you see that? Do you see how they will be deceived? Because they're not looking to the true Christ that's already come. Why would the Muslims go for this peace treaty? You wouldn't think they would want a temple built up there, and they won't. But again, you just heard it again. If the Mahdi says we can do it, I'll go help. Think about that. All right? How much trust they put in there. So they're looking for their Messiah as well. And they think, especially the Shiite Muslims, think that their Antichrist that the Antichrist will be the 12th Imam, the Al-Mahdi. That's who they think he will be. And there's a difference between the Shiite and the Sunni Muslim, just to give you a little quick difference, all right? And it's a political difference between them. It's not a spiritual difference. The Sunni Muslims want elected leaders, people that, that vote to put people in power, okay? The Shiite Muslims, on the other hand, want non-elected leaders, ones that are given a birthright from family passing down, and that's where the imam comes from, all right, for their uh, al-Mahdi. So that's why in Iran and Iraq right now, it's under the rule of Shiite Muslims. It used to not be. Back when Saddam Hussein was in, he was a Sunni, but when we took him out, because he ruled them kind of with an iron fist, right? So that's how he was in control. When we took Saddam Hussein out, now the Shiites actually started to persecute the Sunnis, and now the Shiites are in control. You might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Both will believe in a Muslim Messiah, and he will let the Antichrist convince them to compromise, all right? But it's important in this with the Shiites, all right, who's in control in Iran and Iraq right now, because they believe, again, that Muhammad al-Mahdi is their Messiah. He's their 12th imam. Who this is, it's the 11th imam's son who disappeared in 874 AD. And they believe he's in hiding right now and that he will reappear, all right, right before the end times after a time of chaos, okay? This is their Muslim eschatology, okay? We're studying eschatology of the Christian faith about end times. This is their Muslim brand of it. So they believe the 12th imam comes before the end times, right after a time of world chaos. That's important. Because right now, the leader of Iran is a Shiite Muslim. And that's why he wants to bring in the 12th imam to get things going. So that Muslim will be a one world religion and take over, all right? That's why he's not afraid to bring in nuclear war, guys, in Iraq, all right, in Iran. He's not afraid of it because he believes there has to be world chaos and that will bring in the 12th Imam, the Antichrist. Therefore, you go back to what we learned about with the war of Gog and Magog. Did you remember that? And all that will happen to set the stage and coming in, all right? So, Muslim eschatology, I want you to catch this. They believe this 12th imam, see if this sounds familiar to you. They believe the 12th imam will rule over the nations for seven years. I ain't even kidding you. Who's that? It's the Antichrist. It's not it. They believe their version of Jesus, because the Muslims also believe in Jesus. They just don't believe he's God or the son of God. They just believe he's a man and a prophet. They believe Jesus, their Jesus, I don't even want to say Jesus, it's their Jesus, because it's not the Jesus. Their Jesus will come under the Al-Mahdi, all right, the 12th Imam, and help him, and he will break the cross, denouncing the faith of Christianity and that he died on the cross and was deity, and he will actually con help convert the world to Islam. Who does that sound like? False prophet. Antichrist and the false prophet. Can't make this stuff up, guys. That's where many believe that the one world religion will come from this revived Roman Empire where the Antichrist will arise out of where it will be a Muslim majority because right now, the largest religion besides Christianity in the world is Muslim. There is nothing else closer 
It is close. And they say within a decade or two, if things stay the same, Muslim will be just as popular or more popular than Christianity across the whole world. Think about it now. If the rapture takes place and the church is caught up, what's the number one religion now? Muslim. In fact, there's even a one-world religion headquarters that's been developed and opened up last year. It's called the Abrahamic Family House, where there's a mosque, a church, and a synagogue all in one place, and it's given the idea of bringing religious tolerance to the world. Get this. Everything can run as usual except the church. You can't put a cross on the church. Taking Jesus out. So think about this. If all this happened and we were still here, we'd be screaming, look out! (laughs) What? I mean, all the Impact Church would be like, hold up! (laughs) We just went nine months through this. You know what I'm saying? Y'all be like, we know this stuff now. You know what I'm saying? Hey, look out! He's a false. He's a phony, but we're gone. Ain't too many people screaming, look out. And they fall for it. In fact, the ones that do scream, look out, we're going to see they're going to reject and persecute. All right? Got the picture? So verse 2 tells us that this land was given to the Gentiles. You don't have to do the outer courtyard. It allows this to, to exist. It makes, way, it makes sense for this peace agreement to take place. And then the Bible says in verse 2, this is important, it says they will trample. That means they'll stand in victory over the holy city, and they will trample it underfoot for how long? 42 months. Those of you who are good at math, how's, how long is that? Three and a half years. <laughs> Boy, the Bible's coming together, isn't it? So what just happened? This is pointing to at the time of the abomination of desolation, and we're going to talk about that. The last three and a half years, the Gentiles, the people that they were giving it to, the Palestinians and the Muslims, will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The great tribulation. Do you see it all taking place and coming together? All right. Can't make it any more clear than that. This is pointing to everything that Daniel, Paul, and Jesus talked about. Daniel, of course, in chapter 9, 11, and 12, we've already talked about that. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24, and Paul talked about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, all about this abomination of desolation that will take place. All right? So here's the big question. Now that we know the stage is set and all this is going to happen and the Jews are going to be back in the temple and worshiping and all this kind of stuff, what makes the Antichrist change? Think about that. Something has to happen for him to act like he's going to act and turn on them. What do you think that would be? I mean, think about it. If you were chill with somebody for a bunch of time, hanging out with you, you as boys, right? You as friends. And dude just walked up and punched you in the face one day. You'd be like, hold up, man. I thought we was boys. I thought we was friends. Why are you going to hit me in the face? He's not just going to say, oh, no, I just thought I'd walk up and break your nose. I just wanted to do it. No, you did something. Something happened, or at least in his perception, something happened that you turned against him. Maybe you messed with his girl. Maybe you started doing something or, or whatever that, that he didn't like. I don't know. But something brought the punch on. Does that make sense? Something brings the punch on. What is it? It involves the two witnesses. Are you ready? Let's keep going. All right? Let's read Revelation chapter 11, 3 through 10. Revelation chapter 11, 3 through 10. It says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will, prophesy, they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long is that? It just said three and a half years. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, you ready? The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's the abyss, will make war against them 
overcome them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. All right. So we've heard this little story about the two witnesses that come in after this temple is set. Some believe these two witnesses here are the church and they represent the church. That really bothers me because you're deceived on a lot of what the Bible says, but especially because you're taking these two men that God puts here as witnesses and you're making them symbolic, all right? That's a problem when the Bible doesn't point to symbolism in the passage, okay? We can't just make up our own ideas and stories of God's word. What did we learn last week was important to use to interpret scripture? Scripture. (laughs) Scripture always interprets scripture, not my understanding, not your understanding, not Dr. So-and-so's understanding. The Bible, all right? There's no point here to add symbolism, In fact, sound exegesis, which is understanding of the scripture, requires you interpret the scripture literally unless the text clearly states otherwise. An example will be next week, we'll be in chapter 12, and we'll look at what John calls this dragon that comes on the scene, all right? And you'll be like, woo, a real dragon? No, actually, this one is symbolism because the text will point to it, and it will clearly state that this dragon is Satan, the enemy, Okay, do you see this? You can't just make stuff up. You use the Bible to point to the truth, all right? So this is not a a symbolism. This is actually two witnesses put on the scene to make a difference for God's people, all right? Plus, all the other numbers in this passage are taken literally, and we've proven that through other scripture, the 42 months, right, the last three and a half years, the 1,260 days, the first half of the tribulation, The three and a half days they lay in the street, all of those are literal numbers. Why wouldn't the number two be a literal number as well? Okay? Scripture taken literally. So verse three then starts off with a conjunction, though. This is important. It's the word and. We're we're familiar with the word and in a conjunction. It's the Greek word kahi. All right? And in Greek grammar, it's a copulative uh, conjunction, which means it connects words and phrases. So it's cumulative, that's important, because what it does, it shows that this is a continued thought from verses one and two with the temple into the two witnesses. It's bringing them together. It's important, okay? So what it's showing is that this isn't separate, this is connected, the witnesses and the temple. What that tells us, guys, is God has a purpose for everything. Did you know that? Let's bring some application in. God has a purpose for everything that happens in your life. Did you know it? Even the bad. Because let's be honest, the building of this temple, you might think, well, God, man, if you wouldn't have built the temple, the abomination of desolation would never happen, and all this bad stuff wouldn't have happened to the Jews. Why'd you let the temple be rebuilt? Because he's going to call his people to himself, and he knows that this is what his people need to see him for who he is. Guys, sometimes bad things and bad times happen in our life because God wants to use it like he did with these two witnesses in this circumstance for us to be a witness and to reach other people. And then sometimes he wants it to turn our eyes and other people's eyes to him. So many times we want to come out of the fire and it's the fire that God is using to refine us and to do something. He's doing that with his temple and with these two witnesses. They're combined. So what does that mean? God's not reckless. He's intentional. And he loves you. And he loves people. And he wants to call people to himself. That's the purpose. So we're going to see the purpose for rebuilding the temple. One, yes, obviously fulfill prophecy, right? It's got to happen for all the prophecy to take place. But he wants to make the ministry of the two witnesses more effective. If you're taking notes, write that down. The temple will make the witness and the ministry of the two witnesses more effective. We're going to see how. 
If you look back at, at prophecy, we know and we've talked about God promised that the nation of Israel will be saved, all right? There will be a time where the nation turns their eyes to him. You'll see it in Old Testament, but I want to read it to you in the New Testament. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 26. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 26. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. It says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. You ready? Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. Not all of them. Some have actually come to Christ, right, in this church age. Not all Jews are going to be here in the tribulation. Some have come to Christ. But some of them have hard hearts toward Christ. All right, you ready? It says, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Did you know that was in your Bible? It's God's promise that he's coming for his people. And what this pointing to and alluding to is that after the church age, after the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come, that doesn't mean that more Gentiles won't be saved. Don't be mistaken. They will be saved in the tribulation. We saw that in chapter 7 with the great multitude, right? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation will come in the tribulation and be saved. It's going to happen, but they're going to have to die for their faith, not just live for it, okay? We've talked about that difference. But it's pointing to that once this time happens, God's going to turn his, his uh, affection and his focus to Israel. Do you see that? Once it comes. So there's a distinction between the church and Israel because some people get that confused and think because Israel and the Jews have denied Christ that the church is the new Israel. Uh -uh. No, 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 no. No, the church is separate. All right. We're all the body of Christ together that come to him. But God's promises to Israel and the Jews are separate from the church. Don't get them confused. They're very distinct, okay? All right? So that points to that. And then it says, so after this, his attention is turned to Israel to save his people. So we see the how and the why. You see that? You see the how with the temple, with the witnesses, with all that's going on, and the why, because he wants to call his people back to himself, and he's going to make a place where the witness of these two men are more effective. All right? Let's keep going. So the two witnesses we just saw are going to prophesy where? Where are they going to do their ministry? Where did the Bible just tell us? In Jerusalem or all over the world? In Jerusalem. You say, hold up, Brad, but it just said every people from tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be mad against them and all this kind of stuff. We'll get to that in a minute. But they didn't go. They didn't hop on planes and go all over the world. The 144,000 go across everywhere, all right? These two witnesses are specific to God's people in Jerusalem and the Jews, all right? This is where they minister. How long, all right? And we, we got that proven in verse 8, by the way, all right, if you're taking notes. It says, it says that they were ministry where their Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem at Calvary, okay? How long did they minister there? 1,260 days. Those of you that are good at math, how long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years, okay? All right, you see this on that Jewish calendar. So this three and a half year period is where they witnessed. So that was also the amount of time that Jews were allowed to worship in the temple without any interference from the Antichrist until the abomination of desolation. Do you get it? That's how we know they witnessed in the first half of the tribulation. Do you see that? This is when they were witnessing up to the abomination of desolation, which will happen, that's alluded to in verse 2 that we just read, where they'll start to trample the holy city for 42 months. Bible's making sense, I hope, right? Here we go. So what was their ministry? This is important. What was their ministry? What were they doing? Were they just out kind of passing out some tracts or telling a few people about Jesus? No. They were screaming from the rooftops, baby. They were in the streets of Jerusalem. They were in the temple, and they were preaching Jesus and people that didn't want to hear it. Think about that. They're bearing witness to the law and the prophets, the Bible, that all pointed to Jesus as their Messiah, not the one who they think is at the time. Think about that. So they're in Jerusalem. They're at the temple prophesying to the Jews about Christ. 
So they're going to play a pivotal role in Israel being converted when the Spirit of God just makes it so evident to them. All right? But think about this, like we just talked about. They're not the only witnesses because the Bible we just talked about and learned about before, too, there's 144,000 sealed Jews, right, preaching the word. Remember that? So now you've got this team. And I want you to think about this. What fires up a team? Some fired up leaders, baby. <laughs> right? So these 144,000 sealed, maybe some of them came to Christ through the ministry of the two, two witnesses. I don't know. Maybe they come on, some of them just come when the Holy Spirit fell fresh upon them, when they saw the rapture and they realized that Jesus is who he said he was because they, they knew scripture. I don't know. But I can promise you they were getting fired up by these two witnesses on the scene. Because can you imagine they would be like, hey, man, look. Look what those guys are doing. Man, everybody's mad at them and coming against them. And they keep preaching Jesus. They keep preaching the truth. Hey, if they can do it, we can do it. So you can see these, guys, these men getting together. But yeah, we can do it. It's fast, but boy, let's come on. Let's go. Come on, get in the huddle. Come on, ready? Come on. We're here for such a time as this. God has placed us. Don't back down. Right? Don't love your life until the death. Jesus on three. One, two, three. Let's go. I don't know. That's how I'd be. And they go out and be like, man, I don't care if everybody going to kill us. We're going to share Jesus with some people. And Lord, forgive us for sitting in our seat. <sighs> if y'all are visiting today, I'm not usually this crazy. I'm usually worse. All right. So here we go. Man, it's just, you can just see the word of God come alive. And it's time Seconds are ticking off the clock. Man, it's time to reach God's people. And God's emboldening people with his message. So these two witnesses will reveal the spiritual significance of everything that the priests are doing. I want you to think about that. Envision this picture. And we're going to come back to it at the end. But envision this. They're bringing in their sacrifices. And they're all happy. And everybody's come to Jerusalem and the temple. And, and they're doing all this religious stuff. And they're leaving out Jesus again. Just like it did before. And they're not, they don't have his eyes, they don't have their eyes on him and they're running away from him and they're, and they're believing false doctrine and they're falling for the Antichrist and all this. So they're pointing out the false religion. Think about that. They're pointing out Islam and the false religion and the false hope that they bring. Boy, that's gonna ruffle some feathers. They're pointing out that, that Antichrist is a phony and that he's a fake. And I'm gonna tell you, that's gonna upset everybody. Because that's the man for the world, right? That's where they upset the world, guys. You might say, well, hold up, I thought they were in Jerusalem. Yes, they were, but what's also in Jerusalem? News cameras, newspapers, social media, radio. Hey, there's some two people out here, and they're preaching against our Antichrist, and they're preaching this Jesus stuff when we know that we're all turning, blah, 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 blah. You see it? And it makes the world mad. <sighs> makes sense where it didn't make sense 50 years ago before technology, right? Makes sense. So we see these witnesses making a stand, giving a message in a hostile environment. I'm going to tell you what, people. <laughs> these are some real spiritual leaders here. They ain't out tickling ears. They ain't out there just kind of giving bits and pieces. They're confronting what's going on head front. They're up in the Antichrist grill, baby, preaching Jesus. They're not pulpit pansies. Matter of, fact, matter of fact, many of the pulpit pansies today will probably be the people taking the mark later on. They've already sold Jesus out for their comfort and for their pocketbook and for their full churches. Why wouldn't they sell their life out for a lie? So, these two witnesses using the law and the prophets, the word of God to come. Let's give some reference to that. Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 25 through 27. I'm going to read that in the New Living Translation as well. 
It's a familiar passage to many of you with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, all right? And he's talking with two disciples, not necessarily two of the 12, but two disciples, and they don't recognize him. And they're talking about how what had happened, and they don't understand and that Jesus there had come and he had died. And, and Jesus says this, starting in verse 25. It says, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. What's that, guys? What's that, church? The Pentateuch, right? The law, all right? So he took them through the law, and he took them through the prophets, showing them how all the arrows were pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus. Do you get that? These two witnesses will do the exact same thing. That's their ministry, pointing these people back to the Messiah, preaching the, the word, the Pentateuch, that a lot of these uh, religious leaders of the Jews have memorized. They know it. And this is going to point them back to the truth and how it points to Jesus. So where would this ministry be most effective, church? In Jerusalem, because they're reaching who? The Jews. And what's going to aid it and make it even better to draw more Jews into one confined area where they can preach? The temple. Good job. I hope you see the Bible come alive here and what God's doing. Verse 4, I'm going to move us through now. Points to these two witnesses like two olive trees. And this reference that we don't have time to go back into it, but Zechariah chapter 4. If you remember, we went through the book of Ezra, and we talked about the rebuilding of the temple after, um, after the Babylonian captivity. And they come back with this cat named Zerubbabel. Remember him? We talked about him. Those of y'all that were in the tent, you remember that? All right. And him and Joshua, the high priest, who, who led the, the spiritual charge inside of it, were entering and encountering resistance as the temple was being rebuilt. All right, but they were being used by the Lord to accomplish this work even through resistance. You might even remember verse 6 of that chapter where it says, It'll be not by might nor by power, but by my spirit that this takes place, says the Lord. Remember that? So these two witnesses will be supernaturally anointed to complete the work of the Lord even in the midst of opposition. Let's see that. Verse 5. And it says, Basically, that no one will be able to stop that. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Nobody can stop them until their time is complete. I want you to understand that. God's made a way, even in the resistance, that his hand's over them, and he's in the mission and pushes them back. Who would want to harm them? We've already kind of talked about it. The Antichrist, who they've probably been pointing out as a fake and a phony and a false messiah, just calling him out. Probably mad. He's probably been sending people after him. They keep getting doused with fire. He's like, shucks, right? So I can't keep sending people after him. They keep dying. They're killing all my people. But you know he's getting mad and he wants to, he wants to harm them, okay? Who else would want to hurt him? The Jews. The Jews are like, man, this is the best time in our life. We finally got our temple rebuilt. We're having our sacrifices. We're doing all this stuff again. And here you come pooping on our party. What you doing, man? They're mad too. How about... The Muslims, oh, you know they mad. They're preaching Jesus, right? They're preaching against their false religion probably. You know they're upset. They don't want to hear it either. Who else wants to hear? And we just talked about it, the world, because he's coming against the Antichrist. Their boy, their savior, and it's getting everybody fired up, setting the stage for what's to come. So I want you to think about that. Nobody can touch them. This is probably where MC Hammer got the inspiration to write the song, You Can't Touch This. I mean, thinking about it. I mean, they're out there and, and they're, they're calling out the Antichrist and calling him a phony and they're calling out false religion and they're saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And they're trying to be like, oh, did that upset you? Did that offend you? Can't touch this. I'm sorry. You know what I'm saying? All right. If we were Pentecostal, this might be a good time to drop the beat and stretch our legs, but we're not going to do that. We're going to keep going. All right? I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. All right, let's keep going. 
All right? So we've got this situation where these witnesses are on the scene. Nobody can touch them. Who might they be? I'm going to be honest. We're going to spend a little bit here, but not a lot, because it really doesn't matter who they are. What it matters is what they're doing and what God's doing through them. All right? All right? But when you looked at fire came from their mouth, it kind of points to um, maybe Elijah, right? Because we know Elijah called down fire in many circumstances. In 1 Kings chapter 18, when fire came down the altar. In 2 Kings chapter 1, where uh, three different times fire came down on a set of 50 soldiers, all right? It also says that they shut up the sky for three and a half years so that there was no rain, all right? which is probably why the temple could be built so quick. Maybe we need to ask them to come on the force so we can get our building put up. I don't know. All right, because, man, it's raining a lot. But anyway, so we know that they've, Elijah has shut up rain over Samaria for three years. So here they can do this again. All right, we saw that in 1 Kings chapter 17 with Elijah. It says that they can strike the earth with plagues. Who are we looking at there? Moses, right? And the plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt that God used to come on. That's Exodus chapter 7 through 11. Also, when Jesus took his three disciples, and you can read about this, we don't have time to go into it, in the Gospels, he took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, all right? Two Old Testament prophets were seen talking to Jesus at that moment. Who were they? Moses and Elijah, all right? Also, in Malachi chapter 4, the Word of God says that Elijah will be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's the great and dreadful day of the Lord? points to the great tribulation that Jesus talked about, the last three and a half years, okay? So that's why many believe that this is Moses and Elijah. Moses, again, representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets pointing people back to Jesus, okay? That's where all that comes from. If that's it, I don't know. And I'm gonna be honest, it really doesn't matter. Whether it's them in person or whether it's two people that have the same type of spirit and the same anointing of the Lord as Moses and Elijah and do it. It doesn't matter, but it's going to happen. And that's how it's going to happen. All right. Verse seven. All right. When their time has come, then it's over. Then the Antichrist is allowed to harm them and touch them. Do you see that? So, so clear. Verse 7 said, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. When was their ministry over? After 1260 days. What's that? Midpoint of the tribulation. The beast comes in to overtake them. What are we looking at? Abomination of desolation. Got it? All right. So then the the Antichrist can harm them like he's been wanting to do for so long. And to get this, it says that he come up out of the abyss. Well, hold up. The Antichrist is already on the earth. What do you mean come up out of the abyss, the bottomless pit? That shows that this guy will be demon-possessed. Yes, demon possession is real, people. Okay? All right? It's still real. So he, the demons will come up and actually possess this guy. Maybe before this, he's just been influenced. I don't know by the enemy. Now he will be possessed, and he will wreak havoc on God's people. All right? Verse 8 through 10. Pretty clear, bringing us to a close here. Verses eight through 10. All these people watch these two men lay in the street for three and a half days. In the Middle East, it's a great insult to not bury somebody. Did you know that? It's like if your enemy dies, you want to like get the last punch, so to speak, even when they're dead by just not burying them, just leaving them out. And that's what they do to these two men, all right? And it shows how depraved the people's minds are. It shows how much hatred is in people's heart toward Christ and anybody that stands for him. It's also, by the way, how Muslims celebrate the death of an enemy. Because then it says they have a party and give each other gifts. That's how they celebrate. Did you know after 9-11 that in the Muslim nations, many of them, that people were dancing in the street and passing out candy to each other as gifts because the towers fell when the Muslims hit it? Did you know that? This is how they celebrate. So we can see what's taking place right here. All right? It says, hey, and I'm, let me get this. We're not coming and saying all this to be anti-Muslim. Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, guys, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Let me make this very clear. We love people and share the truth of Jesus with them. Can I make that clear? We don't come against people. We come with love and truth, all right? Just for you don't get the message, oh, yeah, we got to beat them. No, mm -mm. no. We love them and we share truth, but we realize what's going to take place and the truth of what's going on, all right? 
It says, they, it says because they tormented those, these two witnesses tormented those who dwell on the earth. We talked about that. How did they torment them? By coming against their antichrist. On, and they saw it on TV, radio, social media, everything. And get this, they're probably going to see what's about to happen next as well. Let's read verses 11 through 14 as we close. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Oh, my goodness. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Underline that. Their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. God revived them and stood them on their feet. And what happened? Terror fell upon the people. Why? Probably because, like, man, they were breathing fire when they were alive. I can imagine what they're going to do now. You know what I'm saying? So there probably was a little fear there. But then also, they were seeing the supernatural, guys. They saw two dead people that were laying in the street that they were probably kicking their bodies and, and, and doing all kinds of nasty stuff to them that I won't describe here on, 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 on the stage. But they were probably just messing with them. And then these people come to life and stand on their feet. You'd be like, oh! Can you imagine? And they probably think they're going to retaliate, but they don't. What do they do? They hear a voice and they ascend. And they go up and everybody sees them. Can you imagine that? Think about that. And then if that wasn't enough, verse 13 says that same hour, which means at that same time. So it shows us this connected. An earthquake took place. A tenth of the city and the buildings fell and collapsed. 7,000 people died. And it says, and the survivors were terrified and did what? Glorified God. Ladies and gentlemen, dun, 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 who are the survivors? Where are we at? Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem? Jews. Who are the survivors? Jews. They glorify who? God. Oh, come on. Who, who's excited? I mean, I, I'm, I don't know. Am I the only one that's crazy about that? God just used these two witnesses in, in their persecution and then raising them up so that a whole nation could see this and turn their eyes to God. That phrase right there, glorified God, points to repentance. What's repentance? A change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of action. They changed their mind, God did, about who Jesus is through everything he had just done. They know now that he's the Messiah. They changed their heart about how they would worship and who they would be sacrificing to. And they changed their actions by who they worshiped with their tongue. Did you see that? It's repentance. And the nation comes so then what happens next? We've already talked about it. We've already talked about it. Not here specifically it says it, but we know another passage of scripture says that at this time, the midpoint, the abomination of desolation occurs. Think about that. Why? It makes sense now. What fired the beast up? Not just the two witnesses, but then when the witnesses ascended and the Bible says all these Jews who were in this peace treaty and believing that the Antichrist was the Messiah, now they turned their allegiance away from the Antichrist and repented and turned their allegiance to Jesus. He gets fiery mad and he gets ticked off. And now he goes up in the temple and he sets himself up as God and he demands everybody to worship him. And when the Jews don't worship him because now their allegiance is to Jesus, he turns on them and attacks them. And that's what we're going to see. Is the Bible making sense now? Come on. This book ain't that hard when you use the book to understand the book. It's beautiful. And that's when Jesus talked about this abomination that causes desolation. What's desolation? It means emptiness, abandonment, destruction. That's why Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24, hey, when this comes, when he sets himself up in the temple, hey, you that are in Judea, that's Israel, you better run, baby. You better get out of there. Don't, if you're on top of your house, don't get what's in your house. If you're out in the field, don't go back and get your junk. Head to the mountains because it's about to get hot. It's about to happen. Do you see that? Jesus prophesying about this very moment that we're learning about. Verse 14 says, the second woe is past. What was the second woe? That was the sixth trumpet. 
So again, we're showing that we're at the midpoint of the tribulation, so therefore we know when the third woe comes, that's the seventh trumpet, that'll start the second half of the tribulation without delay. There's the Bible. All pointing to why the city will be trampled for 42 months from this point forward. Now let's close with this. Let's visualize this moment and get some application. These two witnesses are on the scene to deliver a message that's not easy. It's counterculture, baby. It's against the grain. And they're in an environment where the Jews aren't believing in Jesus and many people are, 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 aren't believing in Jesus and everybody's following the Antichrist and believing he's the Messiah and they've got to come out and they come against the Antichrist and they come against the false religion of the Muslims and they start preaching for 1260 days. Think about this. As maybe the finishing touches were being put on the temple and people were starting to come to the temple and bring in their sacrifices. And they start saying, hey, you don't need that sacrifice anymore. Jesus is the sacrifice. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, but if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't need forgiveness in that anymore. It's all about him. And people are looking at him like they're crazy. And they bring their sacrifices into the temple. And they say, hey, you don't need that animal as a sacrifice anymore. Didn't I tell you that? Can you imagine this day after day? Say, actually, you're Proper act of worship is not here. Your proper act of worship is to make yourself a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, Romans chapter 12. Can you see them coming at these people with scripture and pointing to everything they're doing as not necessary and pointing to Jesus? And then the priests take this animal and lay it on the altar. And they come at the priest and say, hey, your job's not even necessary anymore because there's no mediator between man and God, except the man Christ Jesus now. In fact, Jesus is our high priest, so you don't even need to do what you're doing. Can you imagine that? And then as the priest sacrifices the animal and splashes the blood on the altar and at the base, they start talking about how Jesus said in Hebrews 10, and they say, man, the blood of these animals cannot take away the sin of the world that, that, that Jesus died and it's his blood that we are forgiven. And they reference Christ's words in Hebrews 10 where he said, you God do not desire a sacrifice or an offering. You have prepared a body for me. Meaning Jesus has come away, come here to abolish the law, to do away with the ceremonial sacrifice and he has set him up, himself up as the only sacrifice that's sufficient for the sin of mankind. You should think about this. And then, Maybe they even start quoting Isaiah chapter 53 to him. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. And it pleased the Lord to wound him and to crush him because he made him a sin offering for us. Can you see the counterculture in that? And then maybe they even start, as they're being laughed at, he start, start saying 2 Corinthians 5.20. It says, we are God's ambassadors. And it's as if God is appealing to you through us. So we implore you, and on Christ's behalf, to be reconciled to God. And they start laughing and mocking him and throwing stuff at him. And maybe they continue with 2 Corinthians 5, 21. says, but he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that through him, we might become the righteousness of God. Is anybody else getting Holy Spirit goosebumps but me? Come on, somebody. He's coming at him with the word of God and coming counterculture with the truth and the light. And you see what God did through them. So now the question, you want some application? What can God do through you? If you have the same resolve to live for Christ in his word, to be sanctified by his truth so that other people can see the light of Christ in you, and then you can go share the truth of Scripture in a counterculture world that does not want to hear it.
but God will use it. Does anybody want to be used like that or is it just me? Let's bow our head and close our eyes. You may see, Brad, I don't even know how I could make a stand or do anything like that. Can I tell you, the Lord will show you. First of all, he's put you in a place, in an environment, at work, at school, on a ball field, or even just out in the grocery store where you're going to encounter people every day who need Jesus. That's where you start. Maybe the second place is you lock arms here with Impact Church and you commit to joining us as we look to do what God's called us to do to reach this community, as we stand on the truth of God's word and preach it boldly and unapologetically, and you can, can be a part of what God's doing by serving, by getting plugged in, by, by growing in a, as a disciple in life groups and Bible studies, and then going and helping when we get on the land and everything that God has for us there to reach a community. That'd be great places to start. So where would you say yes to Jesus right there and just say, Lord, here I am, send me. If you're here today and you've never made a commitment to Jesus and you've never made him Lord of your life, the first place you need to do, the first thing you need to do is surrender your life to him right now. I'm going to lead you through a prayer from your heart to God's heart and I want you to do business with God and surrender your life to him. Or if you're here and you say, Brad, I've committed to him earlier, and, but lately I've drifted, I've walked away, and my faith has grown cold, and the, and the light inside me has grown dim and dark, and I want to come running back to the foot of the cross, and I want to rededicate my life to Jesus and be set afire for him, because I want him to use me as a witness in this world where he's placed me. If that's you and you want to rededicate your life, I'm going to ask you to pray this same prayer from your heart to God's heart right now and do business with him. To receive him for the first time or to rededicate your life just boldly unashamed right now in humility before God say dear God I admit to you that I've messed up that I'm a sinner I've fallen short of your glory and I'm in need of you my Savior thank you for sending your son Jesus God in the flesh to die on the cross the spotless lamb that was slain for my sin and for the sin of the world so that now that I can come before you and be the righteousness of God in him through his sacrifice, because there's nothing in me that's righteous. It's all of you. And Lord, I pray that you would cover me in your blood, in your forgiveness, and that you would redeem me. And thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God. And he stands in victory over all hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to claim that same victory right now. I'm in my life, Lord, I need it. So my commitment to you is from this day forward, I will commit all of my life to you. Every head bowed, every eye still closed. If you did that right there, you committed your life to the Lord for the first time or you rededicated your life to him, I want you to boldly and unashamed raise your hand. Say, Brad, I did business with Jesus right now and I'm not ashamed. Amen. See it. If I don't see it, God does. Amen. Thank you for your boldness. Amen. Church, we give Jesus a big round of applause today for his word. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you learned a whole lot. More than that, I hope your heart was moved a lot because that's more important. Let's go. Let's take this message. Let's go be his witnesses. Let's make an impact for Jesus. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. <laughs>